Gant, the Balsamos, the Wards, the Desitels, um, Jeremy, Lisa, Catherine, um, and the Poriers, Aaron Dow, all those guys. And then um, online, we've got, um, well, in the family room, we've got Daisha, Desitel, and the Studers. And uh, watching online, Dot Delaire, Mara, Brad- Mara Bradford, and um, the Brackens. Just so glad that you guys are, are joining us. And um, we are, uh, we're, we're going to get started in the Word of God. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to, to uh, Luke chapter 15. And um, we're going we're gonna to take a look at um, some parables that Jesus spoke. There's three parables in Luke chapter 15. And as you're getting there, the, uh, the, the title of my message today is Lost or Found. And uh, it comes out of some scriptures that I've just been reading and meditating on. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, here's a trustworthy saying, Paul wrote, that, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. And then he also wrote in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we sing songs like uh, Amazing Grace, right? That, 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 that ballad of uh, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but, but now I see. And... Um, the gospel is and always has been about seeking sinners and saving the lost. And as we now, um, Thanksgiving is behind us and we're heading now into Christmas, like what Zach was talking about, that this is the uh, season of preparation and anticipation of Christmas. And, um, and this is why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. He came while we were still yet sinners. He died for us. Um, the gospel's always been about seeking sinners and saving the lost. And this is great news for lost people. Um, this is great news for people that, um, that have find themselves in a place of, like, of waywardness or in outright rebellion to God, that, that uh, God has come to seek and to save the lost and the sinners. Um, but what we're about to read in Luke chapter 15 is that sometimes, and this is the hard part is for some of us that are church people, is sometimes the greatest hurdle to lost people being found is the already found um, sometimes um, the found fail to see the lost as worthy of being found, and sometimes the lost fail to see themselves as worthy of being found, and sometimes the already found don't help the already lost figure that out um, any, any easier. Um, and I would argue that many churches, even American churches, um, well-meaning churches are built around the priority of actually keeping the found rather than seeking the lost. A lot of the places that we, that we build, uh, worshiping um, centers, the, uh, the programming that we do is all about keeping the found rather than seeking the lost. And um, today we're going to look at, at three parables in Luke chapter 15, and all these parables are led into um, through a scenario that becomes a teaching moment for Jesus. And so I want to kind of set the stage for you. And um, one of the things that I like to do when I read my Bible is to put myself into the situation and to really just feel the awkwardness, right? To feel the, what, what it would have been like to be um, in the midst of Jesus teaching and preaching and what the crowd must have looked like. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, this is how it starts out. It paints a picture for you. It says, Now the tech collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. 
So just pause there for a second. I want you to understand something, that Jesus was kind of an enigma to the religious leaders of his day. In in many ways, uh, religious people saw Jesus as not a very good religious leader because, um, well, um, he was known as a religious leader and that yet none of the religious people seemed to like him all that much. And he didn't hang out with a lot of religious people. In fact, the people that he seemed to draw were the irreligious people. And it's this reality, if you're taking notes this morning, is that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And people who were nothing like Jesus, Jesus liked to be around. And this flies in the face of what a religious leader uh, should be about, right? And especially in this day and age. It's like, why would a good religious leader be hanging out with bad, irreligious people? It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't seem like this is a good way to, to grow a ministry. Um, and these are the, this is the go-to list of bad people, tax collectors and sinners. It may even still be, be that way today. No offense if you're a tax collector, but the, nobody wants to be calling up a tax collector and say, hey, I, know, I was just was wondering if I owed you some more money. Um, no, there's tax collectors and there's sinners. Essentially, what, 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 what we're, they're saying is that um, it's these on-purpose people that maybe is even their profession to do evil or to sin. And that day, these people were taking exorbitant amounts of money to extort money from people, calling it taxes. And, um, and this, was, this was known. This was an, an evil thing. And so tax collectors and sinners, bad people, uh, were hanging out with Jesus. Why? Why were rule breakers and sinners and swindlers and, and bad people um, hanging out with Jesus? All these bad people who were nothing like Jesus were drawn to Jesus, and Jesus was drawn to them. And I often wonder this as a church, as a local church, as the church of, of Jesus Christ, as the American church, as the body of Christ, right? That's what we're known as. Do we carry the same allure that Jesus did? Do people who are nothing like us, are they drawn to us? They say, man, there's something, I don't necessarily know what's different here, but I, I, I am drawn to this and I'm intrigued and I'm interested and I don't feel pushed away. I actually feel welcomed and I don't know why because I know I'm nothing like them. If people who were nothing like Jesus Christ liked Jesus Christ, shouldn't the same be true for the body of Christ? I know that's hard. All right, truth, food, food for thought. Uh, Luke, Luke chapter 15, verse 2, he continues, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. I love that word, mutter. They muttered. means they were kind of like talking to themselves. They weren't talking to Jesus. They were just talking amongst yourselves, you know, complaining. Uh, This is what they were saying. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This word mutter is the springboard for the next three parables that we're about to read in this chapter. And I want you to understand this, and I want you to, to, to grasp what's going on here. So there's Jesus. Surrounding him are sinners, tax collectors, and other on-purpose sinners, following Jesus everywhere he goes. And then outside of that, on the outer rim, are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that are muttering to themselves, kind of judging the people that are following Jesus, and essentially judging Jesus because of, he would allow these people to be following him. And um, this is, they're muttering that Jesus was welcoming and eating um, with on-purpose sinners. Essentially, like, Jesus, you're a religious, or supposedly a religious leader, um, and you're spending way too much time with the irreligious. I don't even know why you would want them to be following you. It doesn't even make sense. Because back in this day, um, inviting somebody to lunch or to welcome them into your place of, of, of living or, or eating with them meant a whole lot more than it means today. It doesn't just mean like, oh, yeah, I just I grabbed a coffee with somebody, grabbed a lunch with somebody, invited a family over for dinner. 
what you were essentially communicating if you invited somebody into your home or you invited them to eat with you is you were saying to them, I want to do community with you. I'm not just trying to put up with you for two hours and hopefully you like my, my meal that I'm cooking for you. I, I want to do community with you. And this is the thing that was riling up the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're like, I just don't even understand. Why would you want to do community with on-purpose sinners? Hey, what do you have in common with them if you're supposedly a good religious leader? What, why would you want to hang out with bad, bad people? And uh, maybe the Pharisees were a little jealous. I mean, thinking, well, you're a religious leader and you never invited me over for dinner. And I'm a religious person and I, I'm, I try to do right and I try to live by the law and I, I pray. And why, why would you not be inviting me to hang out with you, but you're inviting that prostitute or that tax collector or that, that why would you even be paying attention to them? And I want to be clear about something that this crowd that is gathered around Jesus was never an exclusive crowd, ever. Jesus never turned away a Pharisee or a teacher of the law to follow him. He never said, okay, guys, listen, um, I want to make some room for the prostitutes and the, the tax collectors. Are you a sinner? Yeah, you look like a sinner. Come on. You know, bring them in, bring them in. If the Pharisees and, tax, and, and, and teachers of the law, if you got to just kind of stay in the back, you know, just kind of stay back there. I really like to surround myself with irreligious people. There was never that said. In fact, it was never um, uh, an exclusive crowd. The people who wanted to follow Jesus followed Jesus. Sometimes they'd leave, sometimes they'd stay, sometimes they'd follow him from town to town to town to town and wouldn't leave him, but it was never an exclusive crowd. So what was happening here was either the religious people felt like they deserved a special invitation to join the crowd, just, just kind of wondering, I mean, I'm all dressed up, hoping maybe I'd get like an airmail or a Maybe a nod in the back, you know, inviting me a little bit closer. Or, or they are thinking about following Jesus and they're intrigued just in the same way that everybody else is. What is up with this dude? The words that he speaks are different than anybody else's and the deeds that he does are miraculous. I'm intrigued by this religious leader, but I don't like, I don't like who he's walking with. Isn't that kind of the same thing today? I, I like Jesus. I just don't know if I like his followers. <laughs> Just not quite sure if I fit in. I would go to church, but I don't feel welcomed. I don't know if I or my people, my, my kind, would, would be welcomed there. And it's almost like they're kind of looking at Jesus saying, Jesus, you, you know, listen, dude, like all the wrong people are following you. If you want to be a social media influencer, you need to get new followers, better followers. These followers are going to get you nowhere, Jesus. And in fact, Jesus, if you need a little bit of like help here as a religious person to another religious person, like the 12 people that you did choose, I know this is like open to everybody. It's like, woo, hoo, hoo, free pizza. But like, I'm just telling you, like the, the 12 people you did choose, no offense, but it was a horrible first round draft pick. I don't know what you were thinking. If you did like a little like pin the tail on the donkey and somebody spun you around and you just touched the first person you touched, but it looks like it. These 12 dudes you chose look worse than some of the people that you actually have just kind of gathered. I don't know what you were thinking. Now, now these Pharisees and the teachers of the law that are on the outside of the rim, no offense if you're in the back, by the way. I'm not actually pointing to you. But, but if, you, if they're on the outside of the rim and they're looking in and judging people, they're not like, they're, they're thinking like, uh, you know, they'd never say that, that, that these people are worthless, but they would say that they're worth less than me. I'm certainly worth more than these people, this rabble, these yahoos that are like hanging out, 
following Jesus, bothering him everywhere, I could actually do something, right? And um, after all, these are the good guys. They really were good guys. I mean, these, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, these are the people who memorized Scripture. These are the people who taught in the synagogues. These are the people who prayed hours every day and lived their life according to the law. And these yahoos who Jesus was, were following Jesus really didn't seem to be doing much for the kingdom of God. So why would a good teacher hang out with bad people? This is the question. This is what was rolling around in these people. This is what they're muttering about. This is what they're talking about. This is what they're pointing to. Why would Jesus want to hang out with these people? This is the setting and the audience that he gives us these three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And you need to understand this because this is not like, hey, Jesus just thought, hey, you know what I was thinking the other day? Let's give these three parables. These are because of the muttering that was going on. Um, Have you ever lost something of value? in your life? Anybody ever lost something of value? Maybe it was a piece of jewelry uh, that was like, you know, really close to your heart. Do you ever lose your cell phone? Wow, that's a, that's a bad day, isn't it? You lose your cell phone, maybe you lost one of your, ch- one of your children. I don't know, that, that's always a bad day. Yeah, thank you, sir, I saw that hand. Um, he's like, me, I didn't, you know. Nobody's proud of it, nobody wants to raise their hand losing their own kid, but um, um, when, you, when you lose something, it really doesn't matter that you haven't lost other things. Because the only thing that matters is the one thing that you did lose. So if you lose one of your earrings but not the other, you're not like, hey, I lost an earring, but good news, I still got one. No, because it's stupid. You need two earrings, right? So nobody's like, yeah, good job on not losing both earrings. You kind of wish you did lose both because now it just always reminds you of that one earring that you can't find. So for instance, like, let me just, if I lost one of my kids, which I... That's debatable whether I lost them or they just wandered off. But um, if I lost one of my kids, let's say, you know, a few years ago, because he's a little bit older now, I've got two kids, Molly and Carter. Let's say I lost Carter, and I call up my wife, Katie. I'm like, hey, uh, sweetie, hi, love of my life, beautiful bride of mine. I got some bad news and some good news. She's like, okay, what's the bad news? Well, I lost Carter. She's like, what, what? And then after she calms down, I could be like, wait, but, but? She's like, but what? But I didn't lose Molly. <laughs> so, so you're welcome. We got 50-50, you know, that's pretty good. I mean, it's a kind of a passing grade. I mean, if that's all you get, you get one out of two. That's not too bad, right? I'm, how many of you know I'm not going to get an attaboy or like, oh my gosh, be still my heart. You were such a dreamboat. I love that I married you and I respect you. I'm not going to get that. Why? Because we're going to drop everything. We don't even think about Molly right now. I mean, Molly could be wandering off too. We're just thinking about Carter. Why? Because he's the lost one. I'm just focused completely, almost obsessively over trying to find my lost son. And uh, I don't really, doesn't really matter too much that I didn't lose Molly. And this is what Jesus is saying in verse 3. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. But this is even going to be easier. A hundred sheep and loses one of them. And then this question. Doesn't he leave the, the 99 in the open country and then go after the, the, the one lost sheep until he finds it? To which I would say, no, I, I don't understand this rationale, Jesus. I don't, I don't understand um, how you could say, well, of course, well, of course he would leave the other 99 and go find the one. I mean, and here's the thing, I, I, I completely understand that I'm not a shepherd, I don't live in this day and age, but um, who the heck is protecting the other 99? That's my question. 
Of course, you would leave the other 99 in the open country to go wander and find a dumb sheep that wandered off on its own and probably got eaten by a wolf already, but you're going to go leave the other... I'm wondering who is actually going to protect the other 99. You're telling me you're going to risk 99 to go save one dumb sheep. And then he continues, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then, catch this, he calls his friends and neighbors. Hey, guys. And he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. What? To which the, many of them, was, I didn't even know you lost a sheep, but good job. We're partying? This is a party now? I mean, is anybody else still wondering about the other 99? Like, um, what, what happened to them? You, what, you literally got one and went home. You didn't even go back to the herd and be like, okay, we're all going to stick together. Where's everybody? Oh, okay. He just takes one on his shoulders and goes home. To which me, I, I, I sort of rational, logical human being is thinking, where about the other 99 you left in the open country to get eaten by wolves? En masse. Well, what about that? What about that, Jesus? And he says, well, then he, before you can even get into it, he's like, yeah, and then we threw a party for a sheep? You gathered for a sheep. To which I want to argue, like, isn't the party going to cost more than the sheep? Unless mutton is on the menu, I kind of am wondering, like, oh, okay, so we just, we fry him up. Good. Okay, now I understand why we're calling a party. This one needs to die, right? We're going to eat this one because he's, he is the bane of my existence, keeps wandering off. Nope. I also throw a party because he found him. And that's it. And before, before people can get, like, really upset and start wandering away and be like, I don't know, and the crowd starts dispersing, Jesus goes on. He goes, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need not repent. What? So you're telling me that like God is more interested in the guy who is an on-purpose sinner, um, the sheep, who, who wandered off, did everything wrong, didn't listen, didn't stay with the pack, rather than the 99 or the me who does most things right? doesn't seem very fair or equitable. And before they can get upset, Jesus continues in verse 8. He says, or suppose, if you don't like that one, listen to this one. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Now, here's the thing. If I'm looking at it, you, got, you, lost, you lost one silver coin, sweetie. You got nine. Logically, mathematically, this lady needs to calm down right? This is not a big deal. You don't need to turn your house upside down. It's one silver, silver coin. I'm sure it's going to, you know, turn up someplace. No big deal. But then this obsession keeps on in verse 9. And when she finds it, because she didn't quit, she calls her friends and neighbors, same thing. Hey, 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 everybody, everybody, everybody. And says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. Can you imagine getting a phone call like that? Oh, oh, I didn't know you lost one, but, uh, Good job, sweetie. I'm glad you found it, right? And she says, rejoice with me. In the same, and then he says in verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Like both of these stories end with a really awkward party. Yay, I found my one dumb lost sheep. Yay, I found my one coin. Let's party. And 
and it's the, this, this reality that the party is going to cost more than the thing that was lost. It's going to cost more than a sheep. It's going to cost more than a coin. And there seems to be like this, this emotional response that is out of proportion to the thing that you lost. And this is what Jesus keeps pulling out. The, the rejoicing over this thing that was found just really doesn't seem to matter. Like it doesn't matter. I don't understand why you would do this. But Jesus is communicating something here. And I want us to grasp this. If you don't get anything out of this today, is this, that when, when, when we lose something of great value, we will go out of our way to find it. But this is the clincher, that something doesn't have to earn its value or have irreplaceable worth in order for God to value it. What did this sheep do? Nothing but screw up everything, right? He just wandered off and all the other 99 had to be in the open country to go find this one. What are the... There, there's, there's nothing of, of, of irreplaceable worth or that th- this thing could have earned its value in order for God to value it. In fact, what I would argue is this, that it seems to be that for God, lostness gives something more value. It, it's the lost things that, that God all of a sudden just finds like complete and utter worth in. It's, it's lostness that, that seems to give immediate value. Let, let me give you an example, something that we can all relate to. Um, remote controls. Changers, channel changers, you know, you know those? Um, they cost about 10 bucks. It's not much. You can buy them anywhere. You can buy them at, uh, probably buy them in Hannaford. You can buy them uh, at, at Walmart, 10 bucks maybe. You can get a, a universal remote and, and match it up so that it works for, for your television and all that kind of stuff. They're pretty cheap. What happens when you lose one? <laughs> Let me just tell you, they become all of a sudden of great value. I've watched uh, grown men turn their couch inside out, yell, scream, wail, cry, and shout. And that's just what I do last week, right? <laughs> I, I've, watched, I've watched men who have never been down on their hands and knees trying to clean. I've watched them on their hands and knees crawling, looking under a couch and under, underneath things, trying to find their lost one remote. Like, an abduct, like it was an abducted child or something. Like, I'm just going to find this thing. I've watched people, um, you know, talk incessantly about it. You, know, you just can't shut up about the lost remote. Blame everybody who walks by. If you walk too close, I know you did it. You always, and I never. Where'd you put it? I know you took it. I saw you with it. I dreamt it. Jesus gave me a dream that you took it. Right? I mean, we, we, we start to, we search nonstop for it, for a $10 item. A $10 item. I've seen people have more focus on trying to find a remote control than to seek and save the lost people. And uh, because what we highly value, we go out of our way to seek. And what Jesus is communicating more than anything is, hey guys, I know you see a dumb lost sheep. I know you see a single small coin. But I see something of infinite value. It's like every single person counts to him, almost to a degree of obsession. Every single person. And it's their lostness that all of a sudden he can't, he drops everything to seek and to save. And then we get to this third story. It's about a lost son. 
And this last story, I'm going to be honest with you guys, you've probably heard it before. It's the uh, parable of the prodigal. Um, the problem that we run into is this. He's not a dumb animal that we can be like, ah, oh, it's just a, it's a dumb sheep. That's what they do. They wander off. It's fine. What's the big deal? And it's not an inanimate object. It's not a coin that you're just like, I don't know. It's just a coin. It's, it's not the coin's fault. It's the girl's lady's fault, whatever. This son is like an on-purpose sinner. He chooses to sin and get lost on his own. And to the point where you're kind of like, well, he kind of deserves what he had coming to him. Like he, he made those decisions and himself. And this story is about to tick off everyone's sense of decency, no matter who you are. So again, imagine where, who Jesus is talking to. It really doesn't matter. He's about to offend everybody in there, whether you are a sinner or a tax collector or a Pharisee and a teacher of the law. You're about all to get offended as an equal opportunity offense. It starts out by saying this, there was a man that had two sons, and the younger son decided that he wanted his inheritance right now. Essentially, and this doesn't say this in, in here, this is kind of my own, my own words. Essentially, he looks at his father, who's very much alive, and said, Dad, it seems like you're never going to die. <laughs> uh, okay. I've been waiting, and I, I really like my inheritance. Now, I know that you're not dead, but let's pretend like you did. Wouldn't that be fun? A fun little, little exercise, right? Like if you were to die today and I was to get everything that I had coming to me, oh, you got something coming to you. If I had every, if I could get everything that I had coming to me right now, like let's say, you know, it's me and my bro, you know, and let's say you died today, how much money would I get? I mean, that's crazy and insensitive and deserving of, of punishment at least. And, and this is the thing, the father does it. He divides his property and his son's inheritance, and gives it to his, the younger son. And immediately, everyone in the crowd that Jesus is talking to, sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees, teachers of the law, have one thought, including you, one thought. This dad is a fool. What kind of fool does that? What kind of stupid do you have to be to divide up all of you have to give it to a kid who obviously isn't worth giving it to and splits up his inheritance and gives it to his son? And then go figure. The story plays out exactly like you think it would play out. The son takes all the money. He's like, <laughs> and he goes and he spends it all on wild living and women and booze and all kinds of stuff. And then all of a sudden figures out, oh, it wasn't limitless. I ran out. All of his friends leave too because he doesn't have money to buy for everything anymore. And he finds himself waking up in pig slop thinking, uh, this isn't the way I thought my life was going to turn out. And he has this thought, um, I miss my dad, but I'm not sure if my dad misses me. I, I miss home, but I'm not sure if home misses me. And some of you, maybe even right now, you can, you can kind of relate to this because you're like, you know, I want to come home, but, but I just can't bring myself to come back because I, I think that God is disgusted with me because after all, I sinned on purpose. I meant to do it and I did it even though I knew it was wrong. 
So how could I ever come back into the grace of God? How, come, how could I ever, I may be here and I may be checking this thing out, I may be watching online, but how could I ever dare to come close to the Father right now because of what I've done to him? Knowing fully well what I was doing. How could I do that? And some of us can relate. In Luke chapter 15, so he decides, I'm going to go home. I'll just be a servant. I'll just be a servant for my father. I'll try, to, I'll try to earn my way into his good graces. Verse 20, this most preposterous thing happens. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with disgust. No, even crazier. Compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And I bet every single person in, in Jesus' audience, wherever you're at right now, um, you could probably have heard an audible gasp. Like, no way, no way. This isn't even believable. This story's junk. Compassion? How does this father, for what? what? Why does he have compassion for this kid? What did this kid do to deserve compassion? And they would be right. Nothing, except for actively, essentially screwing up his life. He did do that. And it's this reality, I think, that Jesus is speaking through each one of these parables, that your role in your own salvation is really pretty minimal. You know, really, you, you weren't good enough, you aren't good enough, you didn't do enough good things or get, your, get yourself all figured out and all your ducks in a row so that you could finally earn your way into God's good graces. Your role is very minimal. You know, in the, with, the, with the sheep, when it says that he joyfully put the sheep onto his shoulders and then walked back home, do you know why he did that? Many scholars believe that it's because he knew that the sheep would just wander off again. Why? Because sheep aren't like dogs. They don't follow you around. They're not like hungry cats because that's the only time cats are interested in you when they're hungry. You know what I'm talking about. And so he's not like that. You can't just like, oh, I found the sheep. Come here, boy. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. No. Because the sheep will just be like, wah, ah, ah, and just kind of walking around. Ah. So you've got to pick that thing up. It says, I am going to literally carry you back home. It's exactly what Christ has done for you. It's exactly what he's done for you. Well, no, I kind of, you know, I kind of, I started acting good. No, you didn't. You really weren't that good. You kind of kept walking off. And God's like, I found you and I am taking you home. And I'm walking you all the way there because I don't want to lose you again. And it's his grace that not only saved you, but it's his grace that kept you. And sometimes as Christians, we get so focused on God's grace and saving grace, and we forget his keeping grace. We forget the, the years that he's kept us all of these years, even though we've gone wayward, even though we have all, like sheep, gone astray and gone our own way. He has continually brought us back and many times carried us, dragged us, pulled us every step of the way. That's the grace of, that's the, grace of the Father. That's the grace of the Father. And Jesus is making a new filter for us that, um, that we can see life through because we have filters. We have these things, and many, kind of like what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing is they're looking around me like, I think that's a prostitute. Yeah, I've seen her. Oh, that's, a, that's a tax collector. Oh, my gosh, I hope he doesn't look my way. You know, oh, yeah, that's, that's an on-purpose sinner. Absolutely, yeah. 
we have these, these kind of categories that we like to put people in. Not necessarily good, bad, or otherwise. It's just a reality. There's clean, and then there's dirty. There's holy, and then there's sinners. There's Christian versus secular. There's Republican, and then there's Democrats. There's good, there's bad. There's white versus black. There's accidental mistakers versus on-purpose sinners, and those two people have very different places, even though they're imperfect. And so we kind of have these filters that we start to look at people and view the world through. And what is absolutely frustrating is that Jesus refuses to see people through our filters. Refuses, outright refuses, even though it's clearly viewable. Even though he can look out and see, you know, I know who she is, and I know what he's done, and I know what he's done, and Jesus already knows because he's stinking Jesus. And so many, just like these Pharisees and the teachers of law, are wondering, how in the world is Jesus? He's really Jesus. How is he not seeing how crummy these people are? And he's allowing them to follow him. This doesn't, this doesn't even make sense. So how does Jesus see people? And I think he couches it in verse 24 of Luke 15. This is what the Father says. For the Son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Is that God doesn't see people the way we see people. He sees them as either lost or found. That's it. Do you know that humanity's greatest need is that we would be found by God? And if we're not careful, we can fall into this thing where we think that like, well, I just think that there's a whole lot of other things that people need to get and start behaving better and doing changes in their lives in order to to be saved. But Jesus just sees them as either, are you connected or disconnected to me? Because if you're disconnected, then you've got a whole host of problems. If you're connected to me, then we can work on it. That humanity's greatest need is that we would be found by God. And I say this with the amount of, as your pastor, with as much love as I can muster, that if we're not careful, we can be standing on the outside looking in like the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the older brother in the story, thinking that the answer is not that they're dead and need to live again or that they're lost or that they need to be found, but rather they just need to straighten up. They need to start acting better. They need to act like me. They need to vote like me. They need to look like me. They need to behave like me. They need to see the world like I do. Then they would be saved like me. Brothers and sisters, can I just remind you there's only one way that we are saved? And it has never been through your own good works. It has always been through being connected to Jesus Christ. You're either lost or found. Connected or, or disconnected. We're only saved through one way. It is only through this preposterous, outlandish, illogical, seemingly unnecessary, irrational love of a father seeking after his lost kids. That's how we're saved. And it's kids who don't deserve it. And it's kids who certainly didn't earn it. It's kids like you and people who are nothing like you. Or they're lost or found. Lost or found. Dead or alive again. Connected or disconnected to Jesus. And Jesus reminds us they need to be connected to me. This is our only hope. This is the gospel. I mean, Jesus is preaching the gospel in its rawest form. 
This is how our Savior sees everybody in your neighborhood, even the people with the political sign that you'd rather just take down. This is how God sees your crazy uncle that you just had to spend Thanksgiving with. This is how God sees your liberal coworker and your conservative boss. This is how God sees your, the heroin addict and the homeschooled and the young and the old and the rich and the poor. This is how Jesus strips away all of these things that we like to kind of categorize people and what level are you in. And we should all just, rather than a crowd, we should line up. I'll start here as a standard and then you all can line up after that and maybe that text collector, you guys, you can hang out down there. You take up the tail. <laughs> See you later, butt sucker. Okay, and so you, we, I'm going to stand here and then we're just going to all line this thing up. And Jesus strips all that away. He strips all of it away. He says, I want you to see people through my filter. Either they're connected or disconnected from me. That's really all that matters. And um, the reason that Jesus was drawn to people who were far from God, catch this, it's because they were far from God. That's it. The reason why Jesus is drawn to people who are nothing like him is because they're nothing like him. And they need to be connected to him because they're far from him. And I believe that it's the body of Christ, that the mind of Christ will lead us to love the unlovable and seek the lost and call the unqualified and go out to, to love those who others would go out of their way to avoid. Um, because that was you once. Remember that? <laughs> I mean, you certainly didn't deserve it, and there was nothing about you that really was prepped for salvation. It was your lostness that God found you. And I'm so glad that there were people in my life that had better things to do with their time than invest in someone that didn't seem like it was much of an investment in like me. Who are you investing in? Who are you praying for? Who are you lifting up? Are you still writing down those names of those lost loved ones? Praying for them. Praying for them. God, seek after them. Chase after them. Hunt them down with your love and your grace and your mercy. God, I pray you would just outlandishly, over-the-top, ridiculous love that, that they couldn't even escape. I thank you for that, Jesus, because it is your loving kindness that turns us to repentance. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't you stand with me? I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a common denominator in all three of these parables, and it's how it ends. Each of these ends with um, the response of joy and a really weird party. Um, whenever something that was lost, that was found, the response was joy. Hey, I found my sheep. Rejoice with me. Hey, I found my lost son. Rejoice with me. Hey, I found a lost coin. Rejoice with me. And this is the thing that, that God was just speaking to me about is that sometimes I, I believe that God calls people to rejoice with him even when it has nothing to do with them. If you're wondering a mark of maturity in Christian walk, we start out coming to Jesus selfishly. God saved me. Look what he's doing in my life. God, what have you done for me lately? God, I just thank you for what you've done in me. I thank you for what you're doing for me. God, I pray that you would do this for me. I just want you to understand, a mark of maturity in the Christian life is that God calls people, Christians, lovers, followers of Christ, to rejoice with him even when that has nothing to do with them. God, I just thank you what you're doing in him. 
I rejoice what you're doing in her. I don't know what you've been doing in me lately, what you've done for me lately, God, but I'm just so excited that I'm a part of this person's life and I see how you're releasing them and you delivered them from this, God. And it is, God, I just, I am rejoicing not so much of what you've done for me anymore, but what you're doing through me and in them. It's a mark of maturity in the Christian walk. Psalm chapter 51, verse 12 says this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Pause there for a second, verse 12. He says, restore to me. The Lord was speaking to me about this. You've probably heard this before. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And as I was praying about that this weekend, um, I just think it's interesting that it doesn't say restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, restore to me the joy of myself. Because we get focused on that a lot. Let's just be honest as Christians. God, I pray you would remind me of my salvation. God, I pray you would remind me of what you've done in my life. God, I pray that you would remind me and, and, and that I would have joy in my salvation again. And so we get so focused on how God saved me and what, he's do, God, God, what, what you've done for me lately. But here's what I would like to propose to you. And I think that what Jesus is proposing to all of these people is, is, is he's speaking to all these people and offending them. Could it be that there is a connection before, between the restoration of joy in my life and my degree of resting in his salvation? Of his salvation. Because it's not my salvation. It's his salvation that I've been able to be a part of so that means that I can have joy no matter if he's saving me or if he's saving you or somebody else or an addict or if he's working in, in this person's life or in that person's marriage, if he's working in sinners and tax collectors and liberals and Democrats and Republicans and conservatives and he's just working and golly, I'm just so stinking excited. Let's have a party. God is working. He's baptizing people. God, I thank you of what you're doing and I rejoice in your salvation. Renew that joy because of your salvation. Because my joy is anchored in it. And I, 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 my hope is found when the lost are found. And the fields are ripe for harvest. Lord, be the lifter of our heads. Lord, that we're not waiting for you to do something for me lately. But there, we're rejoicing in what you are doing for others daily. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you. We give you glory for all of it. And maybe today, I don't know, maybe you're here right now, you're in our student center, our family room or online, and you're in this place where you're like, you know what, I, I can relate to this, Pastor Justin. Like, I feel disconnected from God. And for whatever reason, I haven't felt like I've been able to walk closer to him. And I realize even through these stories, even through the heart of Christ, that that is something that's actually part of what I've been holding back. And that this unrelenting, ridiculous, outlandish, preposterous love of a father seeking after lost kids. God, I realize that I am that. And I also realize that my role in my own salvation is pretty stinking minimal. I haven't really done that much to earn anything that he's given me. And if you're in that place right now, I just want, just like when I was literally the summer before my ninth grade year, hearing this preposterous love of God said, if that's true, then I want it. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to get it, but I want a relationship with a God like this. If you're there. I don't care how far away you think you are. I don't care if you feel like you're in another county away from God. I just want you to understand his eyes are on you and all you need to do is turn towards him and he'll beat you to you. 
He beat you to you. But why would he want to? I don't know. I still can't figure it out for me. All I know, it is crazy. It's crazy. If that's where you're at, I want you to just pray, pray with me. And there's nothing magical about this prayer, but I just pray that it would be your heart today. It's just simple. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm not even a mistaker. I'm an on-purpose sinner. And I know I don't deserve your love. But God, if, if this is true, then I want it. I believe that God sent his one and only son to come, to die, to be buried, and to rise again on the third day so that we could have more and better life. And so I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today. I pray you'd chase me down, Lord. I pray you'd pursue me. I pray you'd carry me home because I don't know if I can do it on my own. And Jesus, right now, if you're in the sound of my voice, God, I pray that you would begin to start carrying people. I, I believe that just like you began to carry me, God, I pray that we would just sense and know that we know that we know that we know that we know that there is salvation, that the lost are found, and that I'm one of them. God, I thank you that you've continually chased me down in my life. I pray you'd restore to me the joy of your salvation in others. And so, God, I pray for the church. I pray for us in the midst, whether we've been found for 35 years I pray that you would renew the joy of your salvation in our lives. God, that we would be seeking after the lost and praying them into the kingdom and seeking after them. God, I pray that, that none would go missing. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are more than enough and we rest in your grace and your mercy and your love that we certainly don't deserve and we didn't expect and we don't even know how we even are walking in it. So, Lord Jesus, have your way in us. As we worship you, we thank you. As we walk this out, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.